and welcome back to the fifth season of Scene to Song, a musical theater podcast for people who love to discuss, critique, and celebrate musicals as a literary art form. I'm your host, Shoshana Greenberg, and each episode I'll bring on a guest to talk about a musical, musical theater writer, or a topic or trend in musical theater. Scene to Song now has a Patreon, and I'll be releasing some bonus material from this episode there later this week, exclusively for those who join on Patreon. My guests today are Kay Clark and Orion Israelson. Kay is a musical theater composer whose works include Bloody Mary, The Tale of the Sackman, Forgotten Mythos, and Memories Home. She is a graduate of NYU's Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program. Orion is a book writer and a playwright originally from Toronto. She is a graduate of NYU's Graduate Musical Theater Writing Program, the Second City Sketch Comedy Writing Program, and from the University of Toronto. Her works include the full-length musical Tommy Christ, The Guardian, the one-act musical Love in the Dark, and the opera Levels. She is currently a first-year law student at the University of Ottawa. We're going to talk today about the Andrew Lloyd Webber, Charles Hart, and Richard Stilgo musical Phantom of the Opera. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having us. Uh, yes, Shoshana. we are absolutely delighted to be here. Great. Well, we'll get right into our get to know our guest questions. What was your first experience with a musical? My first experience with a musical, my father worked for Feld Entertainment growing up, which was responsible for things like Barnum and Bailey Circus, Disney on Ice, and all of that lot. In about 1997, there was a brief run of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Richard Stilgo's Starlight Express. Now, more specifically, this took into consideration the musical and staging changes that were made in the London 1992 stage adaption, but this was on ice. It was the first true musical I had actually ever attended. But the experience was so incredibly profound for me that it was the moment that I knew that my future was in musical theater. Now, as an adult watching it, it's very different. But for that age, it was new. It was engaging. It was brilliant. And it had over-the-top spectacle. I mean, the original stage production was on skates. Imagine this on ice. It was that much more spectacular. Now, I, uh, I just found myself sitting on the edge of my seat hoping that Rusty and Pearl would win the race, just singing Starlight Express, answer me yes, until I was, like, annoying my parents. <laughs> that's so amazing. crazy. I don't think I've ever heard that story from you. That's so cool. Uh, so my uh, first uh, initial, like, um, uh, musical theater uh, experiences were uh, with the Disney movies. And then um, my grandfather was an amateur lyricist in South Africa and uh, he was very into musicals and we would talk about musicals and when uh, it was his birthday, I would sing him golden age musical songs. So I got really into the golden age musicals. One of my earliest experiences actually with musicals was also Andrew Lloyd Webber and it was uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat. And uh, my parents had gone to see the uh, Di Osmond uh, version that was done by uh, Garth Dabrinsky, um with Lamont. And uh, not to get into like the whole politics with that, um, but they came back with the CD of the show. 
And I listened to it like over and over and over again. And I knew all the words and I knew all the colors at one point. Yeah, Joseph was my first Andrew Lloyd Webber show uh, as well. Uh, what is the last great musical that you saw? In, in all honesty, this is actually a musical that I saw with Orion. Um, we had the pleasure of seeing the previews for six. Mm. Absolutely phenomenal. And uh, I, I might go as, to, as far to say that it, it kind of treads the line between uh, musical and song cycle in a way that is just mm, butter. And as far as spectacle goes, the costumes are absolutely fantastic. They do a lot with the band that keeps you really, really engaged. Every single song is so dramatic and it's very catchy. You can remember every single song hook without a problem. That's absolutely amazing to me. And um, from a person who leans more towards the music side of things, there are so many times I've listened to that show and I'm just like, ah, oh, I wish I came up with that. It's so brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost like can't get out of my brain because I was also like you know when when I saw this question I'm like oh what was the last great musical I saw because there were sort of like two um that come to mind but they're so different you know so one was um the revival of company with the gender swap and that was it hit home for me, you know, as a, a woman in their in their 30s, who are like 30, you know, <laughs> and um, and sort of, you know, connecting with that character um, and also the story. And it was interesting seeing how the songs were retooled in some ways and the story was retooled um, and modernized. And then the other was uh, a musical that I saw in Toronto called Anne Juliet. Um, which is supposed to come to Broadway this coming season. And it was based on uh, the Max Martin catalog of like pop songs from like the nineties, two thousands. And those were all the songs I grew up on. And um, like Kate, I was, um, even though it was, a, it was a jukebox musical, but the book was really well done. And there was like parts where I was like, damn, he wrote that. Oh, I like that twist. I like what he did there. And there was just moments that like, the stage came out and I was like, oh, oh, damn, oh, my gosh. And it was just so smart. And there were such great beats that um, that the writer hit. And um, I'm very excited. I'm excited to see it, you know, come to Broadway and see what my friends in New York think of it. So what is your favorite musical that no one else has heard of? The Molly House. The Molly House, The Molly House. Oh my gosh, this show is unbelievable. So the musical is loosely based actually on a true story. And The Molly House tells the story of an underground gay pub owned by uh, Maggie Clapp. And this is set in, I think, 1726 London. Now the show begins with one of the most captivating earworms of the entire show and of modern musicals, if I may be so bold. But the song is called London Morning. This story has come to life in the minds of Richard Hansen and Divya Mouse. Now, Hansen has a way of expressing even the most macabre in a way that is duly gripping and crippling in a beautiful way. Uh, Mouse is a melodic genius. She just... Oh my God, breathtaking music. Every song has a hook, again, that is just glued to you when you come out of the show. Uh, more than a few times, I find myself like, 
absolutely crying over the plight of these characters. Um, I highly encourage you to check it out. Unbelievably amazing score. Wow. Oh, yeah. I have to check that out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sold. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I love that show. And yeah, and you're right. Divi is an amazing writer. So oh, she's uh, phenomenal. She check it out. Yeah. I think some people have mentioned her on the podcast before in various, <laughs> in various forms. So. So mine is uh, Bed Bugs Exclamation Part Marks, the musical by uh, Fred Souter and Paul Lynchon, um, which I saw back in 2014 at Arclight. And it was, it's just so good. There's like, the, like you talk about earworms. There's such, it's got this great rock score that is just so, so, uh, so infectious and, you know, infectious. Uh, <laughs> Um, and it's, it's just, it's such a great show. It's about a mad scientist named Curly who her mother gets killed by bed bugs. So she wants to rid all the bed bugs of New York and instead makes them, uh, yes. <laughs> you leave the theater, by the way, itching because you're like, oh my God, do I have bed bugs on you? The story, the book goes on a weird ride and it, it takes you to the place where you know you're going to get to, but the journey that it gets you there is so, it's so incredible. And, and like, I remember when I read the book, I was, when I watched the show, I was like, Oh, I can kind of see that. And then, but then the book writer will make a choice. And I'll be like, Oh, and, and it will pay off in, a, in an amazing way. Don't go to bed bugs, the musical, <laughs> a love story. Go to the one with the exclamation mark. Oh, I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say don't two, just Google actually, bed bugs because there's then two different bed bugs musicals, but one's a love story, and I'm talking about the one with the exclamation mark at the oh, end. Okay. So it's like it's like Oklahoma, you know, exclamation oh, mark. Okay. It's very important. <laughs> the exclamation mark. Great. Well, let's move on to our topic, which is Phantom of the Opera, and I'm really excited to talk about this show. Orion, I think our histories with the show are pretty similar, but I don't. Uh, I don't know, uh, Kay, your relationship with the show. So I always start with, yeah, your history with it. Absolutely. So uh, my first experience with the sh- uh, well, with Phantom of the Opera in general. I'll start with the the bigger scope uh, before I go into the show here, but it actually started in high school. Um, when uh, we all got to pick different novels to read for like English literature class. And one of my friends actually got Phantom of the Opera and she was saying how Christine Dye's character is so different in the book than the, uh, the musical. And so um, I was just very intrigued because around that time frame was when the film um, adaptation was coming out. And uh, not to sound like American Pie too much, but I was at band camp when it came out. I was so excited. <laughs> So I feverishly finished reading the novel so that I would have some context when the film came out. And, you know, I was your typical musical theater high schooler. So I obviously knew every single word to every song <laughs> on the uh, on the Broadway album uh, beforehand. Um, so I first digested the film before I was able to actually see my first stage production. When I uh, moved to New York, of course, I had to see the staple production, obviously. Um you know, uh, I, I, I mean, who wouldn't fangirl a little bit over the iconic chandelier moment or like his, his, like actually being there to hear Christine hit that high E at the end of the titular song. I mean, come on, like, <laughs> but yeah, so, um, it was the book first, then the film for me. And then Andrew Lloyd Webber's, uh, version of 
Phantom next. Oh, that's a really interesting trajectory. So I'm probably a very different trajectory to most theater people is um, I, I was introduced to only music of the night, which I would listen to uh, Barbara Streisand sing um, her version. So that was the one that I remember listening to and singing along. Not really knowing was that it was from Phantom, but I sort of knew it was from Phantom. But um, there was sort of this feeling like I want to see Phantom, and I don't want to know the score beforehand. I don't want to know the book. I don't want to know anything. In fact, when I discovered that the chandelier dropped before I went to see the music, I was very upset. So I did not see the film. I did not see anything. I really wanted to go in and see Phantom as if it was 1988 when it opened. On Broadway. Yeah, so I, I went uh, this past June was my first time. <laughs> I only waited 30 years, you know, <laughs> to go see Phantom on Broadway. Um, and I went with a friend and uh, my, you know, we get to um, intermission. I was about to say halftime, but uh, intermission. And she turns, she's like, so what do you think? And she's already seen Phantom and she loves it. And she was actually like singing along a little bit to the songs while we're watching. And I'm sitting there watching and I'm like taking in like Hal Prince's direction. And I'm like, this is a wonderful time capsule of the 80s mega musicals. And it was like, wow. And so she's like, so what do you think? And I'm like, and I turned to her, I'm like, so basically what you're telling me is the Phantom is an incel. <laughs> and she was like, huh. I never thought of it that way. And, you know, this whole time as I was watching this, I was like, because I, I mean, you can't escape Phantom. If you if you were a kid in the 90s and around musicals, you would have seen, Fan, you would have seen culturally Phantom and then the or iconic image of the mask and how Phantom was sort of this misunderstood sort of sexual you know cool character anti-hero and I'm sort of watching this and I'm like my god the phantom is kind of pathetic and sort of an incel and a really unhealthy character and you know there's the, we've had plenty of anti-hero characters in, in you know cultural shows the Sopranos, Tony Soprano is an anti-hero. Carrie Bradshaw is an anti-hero. But there's, there seemed to be something almost dangerous and misogynistic about the character that I sort of, like, I wanted to explore more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's similar to my uh, history with the show. As I said, I, I saw it for the first time, like, five years ago when I knew so I knew somebody who was in the cast. Uh, so I was like, all right, this is a good reason to finally see this show. So I went, I knew the music, as you said, from being a kid in the 90s and hearing people sing it and hearing it, but I never had any interest in the seeing the show itself. Um, just wasn't, never spoke to me in any way. Um, and I'm sitting in the show five years ago. Yeah. And I was like, this is horrifying. I knew that it was this love story. I wasn't prepared for like this very, yeah, toxic, you know, relationship that was actually in the show. And I remember like talking to people afterwards about it and saying like, I I didn't know. I didn't know the Phantom was a terrorist. And, and they were like, no, 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 he... Mm. 
he's not a terrorist. He's, you know, he's misunderstood. Yeah. And I was like, and I was like, but, but he kills people. And they're like, oh, but you know, he, he warns them. He warns them before he does it. And I was like, that, that's like a terrorist, you know? (laughs) So I, what, what horrifies me more most about the show, I guess, is that people watch it, like not, not understanding like that kind of relationship and that character. And I mean, part of it is um, the spectacle of the show is so remarkable. I'm towards the end, you know, spoiler alert, the phantom disappears. (laughs) And when they show that, uh, you know, there was a little, he must've been like an eight, nine, 10 year old boy in the audience, you know, yells out at the end wow, how did they do that? And, you know, there is something really um, beguiling about Mm. the show, um, which can feel dangerous because, as you said, there is this toxic relationship, this toxic character underneath, um, which is very different from, you know, when I was speaking with Kay after I saw the show, I, you know, was uh, hanging out with Kay and she was saying, but... It's because the relationship is so different in the book. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, with that said, in the book, we do get more of the backstory. And, you know, we have that brief little moment where uh, Christine is, is is speaking with Megan. She's like, who's your great tutor? Oh, uh, here's this guy that's been teaching me music since I was a child. We don't get the in-depth struggle that she had in music school. We don't get that mm-hmm. he was like the hero of that moment. And she recently lost her father and she was convinced at first that she was speaking to her father. No, we kind of were thrust into, and using this term again, the, uh, the incel representation of the phantom. And I also need to specify for those like me who didn't originally know what the term incel meant. Uh, that's a slang term for involuntarily celibate. Typically, Mm -hmm. um, it, it takes a misogynistic tone, Mm -hmm. um, and self pitying tone. I just wanted to clarify that because that is something I too, uh, once had to look up for this conversation, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, even in even in the in the novel, we know the Phantom's name. We know his name is Eric. We never get that in the musical. Oh, we don't. Oh, wow. I never realized yeah. that. <laughs> so, the Phantom re- re- remains kind of this cryptic figure, this almost mythical mm-hmm. um, being, and it you know, the story itself lends itself to like a Penny Dreadful style. So I would compare this almost to like a Dracula or Frankenstein type story where um, we have this antagonist who is not necessarily the, the good guy here, right? And if we're being completely honest, there's also another layer of, I would translate it as a, a creep factor a little bit um, in that in reality, Phantom would probably be about 40 years old. Christine, in any adaption that you read or view or listen to, is a 16-year-old girl. Mm-hmm. So there's, so an element of, there's an element of grooming involved as well. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah. And we know that Christine has lost her father. We know that she was an orphan. Uh, we know that she was looking for assistance or some way to reconnect with her father. That is the ultimate grooming. He sees a girl that is in a weakened state that is vulnerable and he leans into the one 
connection that she still has with her father, which is music. And there's an element of manipulation, grooming and manipulation that's involved that can be seen as a, when I was viewing it as like a pickup artist sort of idea. You know, some some say, oh, well, she's actually loving him and falling in love with him. I'm like, but no, I mean, they say that he's a hypnotist. Mm Mm-hmm. He's hypnotizing her. If you think of the song Music of the Night, it's a lullaby. It, mm-hmm. it not only lulls Christine, it lulls the audience. Yeah, it definitely puts of me this asleep. thing back and forth that sort of makes us feel secure, but we're actually not. sharpens, heightens each sensation. Darkness wakes and stirs imagination. Silently the senses abandon their defenses, helpless to resist the notes I write. For I compose the music of the night Slowly, gently, night unfurls its Now, I I think one thing that the musical does beautifully is it leans into tropes. Now, tropes, some people might think... um, might necessarily be like a negative thing, but in this case, it's actually assisting the the listener or the viewer, depending on what uh, how you're taking in Phantom. Now, let's think about this. Typically, the hero is a tenor, or our love interest is a tenor. When we think about the villain, typically they're sitting in bass, right? They are low, right? Particularly, Disney leans into that a lot, yeah. right? Um, we think about like Hades Town as well. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So then. We meet the Phantom. The Phantom is a baritone. So that's that sticky middle ground. So there are moments, particularly in Music of the Night, where he gets higher and he's sitting higher in his range, almost like he's a tenor. But then, particularly in Music of the Night, um, Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of gives us a hint that this is not the good guy, even though we're sitting up high in his range in this song. This is not the good guy. Because he supplies the dissonance in the melodies underneath to be like, hmm, but this isn't a happy melody. Like, this isn't quite the lullaby that you think. Listen to the dissonances, and it almost makes your skin crawl in a way that is so intentional. Um, and it's his, it's one of his singular warnings um, about the Phantom, because for the rest of it, it's very romantic, very sweeping, but music of the night does so much to tell the audience what is actually going on if we pay attention and read between the lines of what is written in the music. Only then can you belong to me Oh 
And then to also go into the structure of the book and the structure of the story is it follows a lot of the incel or involuntary celibate tropes. Incels sort of look at the world through um, themselves as beta males and then alpha males that are referred to as chads and uh, girls that they want called Stacy's who don't who don't want them, but should want them, you know, because there is a sense of entitlement. And when the entitlement isn't fulfilled, there is, um, it lands up leading to misogyny, to terrorism. The Southern Poverty Law Center actually labels incels and incel ideology as, um, as terrorism. And in fact, when the van attack in Toronto happened, um, it was done by an incel person and, you know, that's when the, the culture really hit home for me. Um, and uh, that was actually charged as a terrorist action because incel culture is is so violent that it is viewed as a terrorist ideology. And basically what we have in Phantom of the Opera is we do see that dynamic of Phantom as the incel, as the beta male, Christine as the Stacy, and then Chad being Raul. And which leads to the climax of Phantom taking out his anger on other men, because that's the thing. Incel doesn't just attack women. It also attacks men as well, who they see as taking their women or being successful and, you know, jealousy, um, which plays out, of course, in the climax of Phantom of the Opera, which is that he doesn't, he takes a hold of Raul and he's going to kill Raul. So that's where I, when I really saw it and I like, you know, and going through the whole show, I was like, wow, this really is like this incel troll kind of character. He writes notes. He doesn't face the world head on. He has a sense of entitlement, entitlement for Christine, entitlement for his show to be done. Um, he's really not a, a great character, which is why I'm, I'm so, I guess the ultimate question is why is the Phantom viewed so favorably, especially when, you know, as you and I were talking about it and Kay and I were talking about it, we started saying, well, what is another dynamic that is similar in, in 
and showcases incel, and that's the love triangle in Oklahoma between Curly, Judd, and Lori. Lori being the Stacy, Judd being the incel or the beta male, and Curly being the Chad. And mm. you see that the attack is also on the male. It's not attacking Lori. It's sexually desiring Lori and wanting to attack the alpha male, which or the Chad, which is Curly. And but Judd is not seen as a sexual character. I mean, even in the revival, he's made a little more sexier, but there's no mistake that Judd is the villain of Oklahoma. He is always viewed it that way. He is always the antagonist. Um, he he gets killed at the end. The Phantom does not die at the end. You know, why do we have such a forgiving attitude towards the Phantom? Mm-hmm. And that's also interesting, an interesting comparison too, because let's let's think about both of these shows kind of have what we might refer to as a dream sequence in a way. So in um, in Oklahoma, they obviously have the ballet where Lori is having a straight up nightmare about Judd. There is no mistaking that. But we also have that kind of moment happen in Phantom um, with the title song, Phantom of the Opera. Now in this moment, it's almost like a dreamlike state. Now one could interpret maybe she was drugged, maybe she's under hypnosis, right? But there you can pick up that something is not quite right with what is happening with Christine in this moment. Something is awry. And she's following him um, basically into his domain. But they're, they use smoke effects. They use uh, different sets of lighting. And it really gives you a feeling like she is in a dream or like a dreamlike state. And given that she is consistently pulling away from him or there's like a, a moment where she's interacting with him where her body language is saying no, but her body is moving forward, that can be viewed as a nightmare. So it is very, very clear uh, what both of these uh, female characters, uh, how they view um, the uh, incel character and how they see it as a danger like their 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 gut feelings are telling them mm, stranger danger in both moments there, so it does a lot to support the comparison, I think. But also, it's interesting how the two ends vary so drastically differently. Different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, drastically when different. when they go into the lair and Phantom, that that song, the music is completely different from everything. Which I I mean I love that contrast, but it definitely at least to me shows that like this is this is not quite real your reality this is like a mix of like contemporary <laughs> synthesizers drums pop with what you've uh what you're used to
Yeah, and it should be, it is also interesting because I think in the case uh, of Lori as well as Christine, there is an added element of like, they know that these aren't the right, there's a level of danger. And I think with Christine is she can't control it because of this sort of hypnosis that's involved. I think with Lori, she's well aware of that. Um, but there are other aspects of either, you know, cause we know that beforehand there's exposition of Lori going to bring um, Judd's soup and when he was sick and the kindness and there could have been an aspect of, of like, you know, the Florence Nightingale syndrome where, you know, she felt pity on him, which is also something Christine does with the Phantom. But there is always this element of like these men are attaining these women through not necessarily pure means. Mm -hmm. it, it gives off that sense of danger. Let's talk a little bit about the reason that um, Eric or the Phantom, depending on how we want to address him, uh, is uh, made to grow up rejected. Now, this is based on his physical appearance. So in the book, they describe him as a skeleton um, covered in rotted skin from head to toe. Now, in our musical, we have half a face covered in a mask. Um, and for all intents and purposes, he's a pretty good looking dude otherwise, right? <laughs> so it is kind of um, suspension of disbelief, right? And uh, realistically, um, it's a little tough when, you know, you have people like Ramin Karamloo playing Phantom and you're like, well, that's a snack. Great. The thing is, is like realistically, if we're truly thinking about who the Phantom is, he's not, and I promise I have a point to this, he's not without merit because he isn't helpless. He has a beautiful singing voice. He's a, a very skilled uh ventriloquist. He can throw his voice as he shows multiple times. So, and that skill ultimately allows him to haunt the opera, but he's creating pity for himself. Mm -hmm. There is nothing that is stopping him from having a music career, for example, because the people in the opera um, acknowledge the fact that he is uh, a skilled musical mind. Um, Christine acknowledges that he is a skilled musical mind. Uh, there is nothing to stop him from pursuing that path, but he's just so sorry for himself that uh, he's like, I am without, so therefore I'm hiding in mirrors or behind walls and watching you which let's not even go into how creepy that is. But the, the fact is, is he's kind of trapped himself in his own making. Now, we mm -hmm. are set to believe that society has cast him out. But that's not quite the case, right? Because Christine welcomes him. Now, yes, is that a grooming situation? Absolutely. But how des desperate is Meg to get her hands on the Phantom? And even, even her mother wants, uh, w wants him to be part of their community. So it's, it's not that he is cast out truly by his community. It's that he's cast himself out from his community. So it's a self-imposed incel in, in the case of the Phantom. Well, yeah. And I think in that case is that's why he's even more... I think um, representative of, of incels today versus Judd, um, which is a good point because Judd is, is a cast out from the society that he lives in. And you know, Judd is often coded as being indigenous, not saying that indigenous are incel, but you know, that that character is rejected from society. That's not Judd's making. Um, the Phantom, yes, creates his seclusion himself. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about the 
the lack of backstory in the musical, that's sometimes like a character, if they're like a villain and evil, like I don't need a backstory for them. I need like a motivation, but I don't need like a backstory. Like I think for me, like that's why the musical Beetlejuice, why I didn't love it is because I thought they gave him too much backstory. But in Phantom, (laughs) in Phantom, I'm like, if you're asking me to like sympathize with this guy, like in me, I need a backstory <laughs> because otherwise like I, there's nothing there. And yeah, all, we, all we get is he's just a creepy guy that is watching behind a wall and is incredibly possessive over a 16 year old girl. And that is what we are handed yeah. and told that we need to digest. Now, um, again, going back to the fact that Andrew Lloyd Webber did wonders musically to, to get the buy-in really, because, uh, musically speaking, there are some absolutely beautiful lines. Um, we very easily buy into this innocent presentation of Christine Diet when she does, uh, think of me, for example, like Mm. that is just breathtaking, very innocent, very beautiful. And so we kind of see her as this pure soul, right? Um, and then immediately we see this looming presence and there's no way to digest his character other than seeing him as a predator. And you know, they, we do get a little bit more of the backstory of, or not, or just maybe his skill set, mm-hmm. which don't necessarily reflect somebody who is without or with without intelligence. You know, someone who is quite dynamic. Um, but Think of Me is also a really interesting song that that is Christine's signature song at the beginning because of the words, think of me, which means that she is a creation actually in the Phantom's mind. She is not the reality of the character. And the fact that this is also a memory piece in a way, because it does start off and then goes back. Um, Raul is also thinking of her as a memory and not in the reality of who she is a person, which is also problematic when you're, valuing women and when InStyles value women it's just on appearance alone it's of the thinking of what they are instead of the reality of who they are Does she ever want to be a singer? Like as much as they he pushes her into it, it's more like like her her desire is I I feel like is not quite clear. Her, <laughs> and, her want she doesn't yeah. really have a want. Yeah, she, she is a very reactive, passive character in a way. Well, I I this is my personal interpretation of it. Mm. I feel that Christine's uh, draw to music is just her want to have a connection with her father mm-hmm. and still have some sort of mm-hmm. bond with him. And so I don't know ne- necessarily if that's um, to be the prima donna or the ingenue, but it 
it is to still maintain that connection to her her late father. And I, I feel like that is her drive. So mm-hmm. I don't necessarily mm-hmm. think that she dislikes right. um, what's, uh, you know, having the opportunity to have these moments. But uh, obviously it's terrifying because there is a literal terrorist <laughs> um, <laughs> making these happen. So yeah, I I saw it five years ago on Broadway, but I also watched the, um, I guess, 20, what is it, 25th anniversary with Sierra Bagus and... Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so I watched that. Maybe this is just like an interpretation, like the actor's interpretation, but it seemed like when he was getting her to sing in that way, like she, it, it looked like she felt like, oh my God, I have this power in me and only, and I never felt it before and he's brought it out. I don't know if that's mm-hmm. in there or just like my reading of like her Sarah Bogus's face as she's singing in the, you know, da, 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 you know, when he's like keep mm-hmm. getting her to keep singing more, but it seemed like, and that was like, could be like part of their, her connection to him and why she in a way is drawn to him more actively than just being hypnotized is that he's bringing out this, power in her that she's never experienced before because she's never really gone there now she which could be it. a double entendre for other right. things that happen <laughs> in the show <laughs> hey get out of my dirty mind <laughs> i mean let's be real that does happen in the show so yeah. you know <laughs> yep yep no it definitely is like he's sort of taking her to that next level mm-hmm. entendre or not musically and not musically um but there still seems to be an element of manipulation which makes it very confusing i think for christine because in one sense it's she it's great that she is able to reach those notes and is but it's is it as you said is it really what she wants you know she's seen this power but it's it, it can also be frightening. It's like, well, then there's also this feeling like, can I only get this power when I'm with this person and this right. person I'm not so sure about, you know, to use wicked, there's no, uh, defying gravity <laughs> right. kind of feeling where it's like, no, I'm going to take hold of this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's no agency or self-realization. Right. Mm-hmm. And even the way Christine sort of ends the show of, of, there's almost that moment of pity where she kisses the phantom Mm -hmm. and you know it's supposed to like I almost often wonder as this idea of like oh she's shown him that bit of kindness that he's always wanted and you know that now he can move on and it's it felt kind of hollow it felt kind of tacked on I almost feel like like the book writer initially wanted to kill the phantom Mm -hmm. and the producer was like no 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 you can't do that you know why does that happen right at the end mm-hmm. of, of that kiss? Like she doesn't owe him that. And right. yet she still does that. And it's it, like, that's enough. And it, is it because he just killed for her and destroyed the theater and did all these things. And it's like, is he just like finally letting her go? And it felt to me um, inauthentic for the character that we just saw for an hour and a half or two hours. Inauthentic for, for the phantom, phantom to just to like let the turn. two of them leave yeah. and and just uh, now I can move on with my life because I've oh, been shown yeah. kindness. It's like, you know, maybe if you'd shown a bit of kindness to yourself, 
and to others. So you would have gotten it, you know. I I guess that's the stretch that they are trying to press there because again, they are basically arguing that the reason he is so violent is the only thing he's ever known is is malice, right? And so to have this one moment of true affection that he didn't elicit from force is is what kind of but he does changes elicit. him now. It does. It's it, it still is felt elicit in force. I mean, he's holding Raul hostage. He lets him go. You know, that's his act of kindness, and and it's sort of the kindness in return. But it doesn't feel warranted. I I feel like in in today's day and age, it's like I don't think that she needs to do that. I mean, I'm I'm definitely agreeing with you there. But let's think about this also for a moment. So she refers to him almost the entire first half of the show as the angel of music angel the angel specifically that is such a powerful word in or or even a powerful name to give someone in any culture because it it means like a higher being a heavenly being someone who is from the other right so it also does kind of come from this like mystical again kind of tiptoeing into the penny dreadful zone but it also shows us how Christine in her sort of naive setting, and that's really how she's presented is quite naive, um, in her kind of naive setting, sees him as a hero or a blessing even. Um, and so even after all this torture, she doesn't really understand what he's coming from, but she is trying to grip onto some semblance of reasoning as to why he would be doing these things. And she's giving him the benefit of the doubt for a lot of it, which also gives me a giant eyebrow up like, Ooh, girl, watch yourself. But that's where Christine's character goes. So at the end, it may be kind of loaded. It could be her goodbye, her thank you for getting me through the hardest time of my life. You know, it, there's a lot of emotional layers in that moment for Christine specifically, not Mm -hmm. necessarily for Phantom. We have already kind of discussed how his art goes there, but Christine, she hasn't really been bitter or angry at Phantom, even, even when he's literally trying to kill her lover in front of her. Like Mm -hmm. she... It's almost like she's trying to spare his feelings. Now, one, that could be interpreted in the way that, well, as a woman, you're going to try to be as polite as possible to the man with the gun pointed at your face, but uh, proverbially speaking. But um, that also could come from genuine sympathy for his plight. Now, um, with that said, um, I do not think Christine is structured, and I'm sorry to say this, Andrew Lloyd Webber, I love your work musically. I don't think she is structured like a realistic woman. Um, she's a little bit shallow in her complexities. Um, I think that a an actual human being would have more complex feelings about the fact that her angel, this person who has protected her and built her up in music and kind of been her ear uh, for a long time, has been murdering people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and these are people that she works with, you know, these are people she knows. This isn't like a stranger that has just dropped dead. He's murdering people that she's familiar with that are in her community. Um, I don't think even the most naive of souls 
would be super keen to run back up to the angel of music and give him a big old hug. You know what I mean? Um, there needs to be a little bit more complexity. And I will say the actresses that have portrayed Christine really do a lot with the little that they are provided um, in that means. But I would really be intrigued to see a more modern take on these ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And even if we think of a grooming kind of figurehead uh, in another musical like My Fair Lady, where it literally is a grooming, it's based on Pygmalion, you know, of mm-hmm. Professor Higgins essentially grooming Eliza Doolittle um, in the most romantic and charming way, we still get a moment at the end of My Fair Lady where Eliza sings to him, I can do without you. Mm-hmm. where she is asserting her independence, which doesn't take place in Phantom, which I agree. And I, maybe that's why I'm feeling the moment is so inauthentic. Okay. Cause I think you're right. I think in that moment, Christine is, is written, uh, slightly written, underwritten uh, in, in taking what she's done before, what, what has happened before and where she is now. Now, I I will say Christine does have what one could interpret as a trauma response. Now, Mm -hmm. um, she runs into the arms of her childhood friend who she hasn't seen in years. Now, the the musical makes it seem like they were very, very, very young children um, when they last saw each other. Now, they could have grown up together and perhaps their version of a young child is 13, you know, and in this case, Christine is really 16. So three years ago. Okay, sure. Maybe you guys were childhood besties all through your years, but the information we're given makes it kind of seem like they were, they were childhood companions, but haven't seen each other for a very, very long time. And as we age, people become different people. Um, and with that, let's imagine that someone is going around murdering your coworkers. The very first thing you're going to do is run to a person who's familiar to you that you think is safe. Now, I say this because I don't feel like we have too much time with Raul and Christine before the grandiose gestures of romance begin. Um, It pretty much happens immediately after he sees her sing. And then we're taken away to, you know... um, uh, all I ask of you, right? And then, of course, it, it is intriguing that we see the Phantoms version of that later. But uh, it's it, to me that that sounds like a trauma response. You don't have very much time, and you're immediately like, "Just stay with me forever, protect me," because I'm scared. Now, that is the one time where I do feel like there's a complexity in her character that makes sense. Um, and I say this because. Trauma can present in many, many different ways. Running to someone familiar um, can be one of those responses. But I do think Christine in this moment does the same thing to Raul that Phantom did to her. And that is imagining who this person is and painting a picture of who they are to you in your head without spending time with that person or... Mm -hmm having them engage specifically with their own personality. She's just like, Raul is my protector. I know him, assuming that he's the exact same person he was in his childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, and again, it goes back to um, the fact that 
when we're introduced to Raul, he's an old man, and the song that he connects to Christine is the Think of Me song, which is Mm -hmm. an idea of Christine and not actually Christine. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to see, yeah, more modern takes on this. I mean, this was written in the 80s when, like, that was a very different time, but how we looked at women in media and popular culture and stories was well it was also yeah it was also the conservative backlash Mm -hmm. of the 1980s you know we had the second wave feminism of the 70s and then with reagan was the conservative backlash and with that came more of these ideologies of yes women are doing things yes they're in the workforce yes they've made great strides but there was still this feeling of of structuring it within the limitations of the patriarchy of, you know, a woman can be many things, but cannot be beyond what the patriarchy values it to be. And she's the best when she's possessed. That's how. Yeah. And she's the best when she's possessed, (laughs) when she has a man behind her. (laughs) Well, this is also coming from a time frame when, um, well, this is this is going to be a dark comment, so just prepping you for that. But this is coming from a time frame where uh, if you drugged someone that wasn't necessarily seen as rape, mm-hmm. um, we can also talk about, for example, Revenge of the Nerds came out during that time frame. And there oh, is a very yeah. questionable scene there um, that also um, results in, in rape. And it was seen perfectly fine. And then we all laugh about it at the end of the well, movie. You know, um, that kind well, of treatment of women really sculpted the the pop popular culture yeah Yeah, exactly and so and that brings me back again to the music of the night moment i i keep talking about this because um it can be seen a lot of different ways because they don't bluntly tell us what happens in that scene we are meant to interpret it based on the actions of the actors um and what little we get in the script and based on the uh couple productions that i've seen each time there seems to be a bit of a daze or a confusion, almost like Christine is drugged and she kind of goes with him willingly. Now you can see her slightly push back, almost like someone who is intoxicated would push back um, someone who they don't want to necessarily get close to. Um, so it does feel, and, and pardon my bluntness here, quite rapey. Um, it's now, like a no means yes kind of situation. Yes. Now, um, based on the interpretation of things that happen in the book and things that happen on stage, I personally am of the belief that it is insinuated that they uh, have sex in this moment. Um, I do not believe it is consensual. And that is a major problem I see in the show as a whole. Um, But it does bring us back again to what pop culture saw as consent of that in that particular time period. The musical earworms really make us lean into the romantic. Now, again, musically speaking, these lines are long. They are luscious. They are sweeping. They are romantic. It makes us sympathize musically because the music can do so much to evoke an emotional response that we may overlook things like the very creepy actions Mm -hmm. of the titular character. I think given our, our current... Uh, pop culture climate, our current climate as a society, I think perhaps we should reevaluate some of these um, musicals that we hold high and mighty and supreme. 
Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. So we're going to talk about, for Why Is This So Good, uh, two songs. The first one, uh, What You Feel, from the Buffy musical episode, Once More with Feeling. And I feel uh, like this is um, sort of related. I, I almost feel like like people should be able to figure out which one is which, you know? Oh. <laughs> like, you do what? <laughs> this is yeah, so this is uh, Kay's pick. Um, so, Kay, why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Okay, so there is there's so many reasons, but I do need to start by saying that this is a uh, singular standing episode from Buffy the TV show. The episode itself is about 50 minutes long, while Buffy itself is a love letter to farce on the genre of those things that go bump in the night. Uh, it does fit perfectly that this one episode, this singular episode, is a love letter to musical theater as a whole. Now, here we have uh, the antagonist introduction, seduction. It is very sultry, very jazzy, and we learn about who sweet the antagonist is, what he wants, and never have I been so convinced that going to the dark side could be so fun. Um, (laughs) In musical theater, if a character needs to convince someone, the first thing I personally think of is jazz seduction. Jazz, there's something very alluring about it, and in this moment, he is by far the most captivating song. And he's trying to convince Dawn to uh, come with him and rule in hell, uh, ostensibly. Um, now, they cast uh, Hinton Battle in this role because who better to play the sultry jazz villain than a singer who can literally live in that bass range? And also, uh, because this is musical theater, we need a tap break. So it is, of course, that comes halfway through the song. And we learn the rules of the world in this moment. It is amazing. Great character introduction. Why'd you run away? Don't you like my style? Why don't you come and play? I guarantee a great big smile. I come from the imagination and I'm here strictly by your invocation so what do you say why don't we dance a while um I'm a big Buffy fan uh from way back and I used to go to the uh sing-alongs that they had at the IFC center for (laughs) this episode uh 15 or so years ago before it got shut down so I'm like, have sung this song a lot in the theater, uh, movie theater setting. I think this is one of the better songs in the episode. Not that I mean, they're all good, but I, I really like this. Absolutely. One yes, I agree. In particular, because I mean, not just because Hinton Battle singing it and he's like a real performer, as you say, there's such like a fun vibe to it. And the rhymes are all work. I mean, Joss Whedon is, I don't think is the best lyricist but um (laughs) yeah he does a he does a pretty good job in this song and like the whole all like the ruin get a soft shoe in like those rhymes are are really fun and um there's just one that annoys me so that's a pretty good (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) which is uh the rhyme of must sting and combusting i've yeah, oh, no, even I just heard that. I'm like, all these hearts lay open that musting, plus some customers just uh, start combusting. Yeah. All those hearts lay open that musting, plus some customers just start combusting. That's the penalty 
when life is but a song. That one's a no for me, but ev- I think everything else. Um, every- I think everything else in this song really works. <laughs> um, I think my favorite thing too in this moment is when we first start, we only see his feet, and it's yeah. very playful. And it's it. Well, he's talking about soft shoe. It's literally like a little soft shoe moment. Um, so it's very playful and very flirty, and we're like, oh, well, maybe he's a good guy. And even Don is like, oh, so you're a good demon, bringing right. the fun in. <laughs> But it's it's very clearly a, a seduction uh, introduction, and I love it, love it, love it. Yeah, that's its function. Yeah, it's and it's similar to Phantom in a way. Here's this <laughs> demon kind of, yeah, seducing the like uh, innocent girl kidnapped. <laughs> this moment yeah i think um my favorite line in there is when don says what i mean i'm 15 so this queen thing's illegal yeah (laughs) (laughs) she's a little more assertive than christine (laughs) oh definitely definitely (laughs) but it's amazing what you know 10 15 years can do yeah Yeah, i was gonna yeah culturally wise i mean yeah Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, uh, I talk about this song quite often. I think Orian has sat through <laughs> me tangenting on this uh, I mean, easily I, for an hour multiple times. <laughs> I have I have, I've never really watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm like, uh, yeah, sorry. Yes, I've never really watched it. But I've seen this song because Kay showed it to me. <laughs> it is a seduc- seduction, but what he actually gets out of it is like, a piece of information that he needs and uses and which exactly. is like that her sister's the slayer and mm-hmm. uh it's i think this song works really well and just like that comes out and like that's that's like the main function like it has a really great function in that moment mm-hmm. yes cool and uh so our next song for why is this so good since we have two folks uh, on the podcast, uh, Orion, we're going to talk about uh, You Could Drive a Person Crazy from Company. So why did you pick this song for Why Is This So Good? Um, okay, so to get a little real here, uh, when I saw the revival, uh, the song came on and I just started bawling my eyes out. Just I, I couldn't stop crying. Thank God my friend didn't, was like, she just ignored me. But um <laughs> I was just crying so hard because I had never in my life. No, that's not true. I've had moments in my life where an art just hits you with what you're going on at that moment. Mm -hmm. So for me, I had just, uh, I was in New York. I just run into an ex of mine who's, you know, a 30 something guy who sort of, you know, leaves me dangling, leaves me in it just, you know, even though it was gender swapped, you know, I'm interpreting the lyrics also as the original intention for Bobby's being male. And I, it was just everything that I was, that I've been feeling at, at the time with this person, I was seeing played out in a stage written by Stephen Sondheim almost 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh no, over 50 years ago. So, you know, I think it really speaks to how there's always art that we love and we appreciate and we go, but then there are moments where it just is so telling of of where you are in your life um, in that 
and your relationships with others. And I think that that's, it made me realize like why I love to write, why I continue to write, why I continue to study musicals and pop culture and history. It's because of looking at those moments that I can bring into my life, looking at those moments and realizing that I'm not alone, that other people have felt this, um, that other people are also, you know, struggling in certain areas. Mm-hmm. And there is something so comforting about that. And I think very healthy emotionally about that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that song, as I grew up with company, first saw it, like when I was in high school, had always been the song with like the, sh- the, the shiny rhymes, like the mm-hmm. tour de force, like, three women singing together in this newest version, three men, but uh, three women singing together and these like little tight harmonies, like singing a lot of like really complex words that rhyme. And a person's personality is personable. You should not sit like a lump. It's harder than a manager coerce level to try to get you off your rump. So single and attentive and attractive a man is everything a person could wish. But turning off a person is the act of a man who likes to pull the hooks at a fish. Knock, knock, is anybody there? Knock, knock, it really isn't fair. Knock, knock, I'm working on my job. Knock, knock, a zombie's in my arms. And it's crafted beautifully. Yeah. It's a beautifully crafted song. Yeah, but it's true, like, as as you kind of like grow into company, like as I've gotten older, like you start to see like and feel like the more emotional core of that song, which is there. It's just kind of like, because the song is so stylized, it can, if you're not like, I think if it can be like, if you're not feeling those things, it could, that emotion can be hidden like in the song. Yeah. It's not a song that you would typically cry to. I mean, you, you know, if somebody cries at the end of a, uh, of a uh, being alive, yeah, that makes sense. It's it's well, you know, you know, mm-hmm. it swelters to this, you know, crescendo moment where you cry and you release emotion. But nobody expects to turn and see me bawling my eyes out in the middle of you could drive a person crazy. Yeah, because those women, like so. in that moment, like they're angry and frustrated, but they're also like hurt. Like there's a hurt there from this, and 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 it's me. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's lots of women, and it, it was just very. Very cathartic. Exclusive you, elusive you. Will any person ever get the juice off you? You're crazy. You're a lovely person. You're a moving, deeply maladjusted, never to be trusted, crazy person. Bobby is my hobby and I'm giving it up. Cool. So we'll move to our final section, something wonderful, where we just talk about something in the musical theater world that uh, we are excited about and or want to give a shout out to. Shout out to mine and Kay's show that we're writing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, The Devil in Three Hairs. <laughs> it's um, it is a musical based on the grim fairy tale, uh, but our protagonist kind of takes her agency under her own and the narrator throws herself into the story. So the first half of our story uh, 
starts with the traditional fairy tale you know, and then the second half of our story is the rest of the fairy tale that no one ever told you. Mm-hmm. And it's really it's cool. got a lot of um, you know, sort of like when this when the story doesn't work out the way you planned. You know, what do you do? You know, where do you build take that inner strength? Yeah. Um. So when happily ever after doesn't work out, basically. And then it leads to a new and even better happily ever after. Nice. I I do want to give a couple shout outs that I'm super excited for. So um, one of them is K-pop from uh, Jason it. Kim, you Helen Park, it. and Max Vernon. I will happily you, steal that. I am you so You stole pumped. that from me, man. <laughs> I'm so K-pop, mad. K-pop. Yes. I am so excited. In terms of other things, I'm starting a new book. It's not necessarily a new release, but it's an interesting book called uh, Making Americans, uh, Jews in the Broadway Musical by Dr. Andrea Most, uh, which is a really interesting story about uh, basically the rise of, uh, or not necessarily the rise, but the, you know, the golden age of musical correlating with um, Jewish uh, inclusion into American society in post World War II. So um, excited to start to read that. Unfortunately, I think Comfort Way will close before this podcast airs. Oh yeah, uh, but that's a great Canadian musical, and we've also got some great Canadian musicals in the pipeline that are really exciting. Yeah. Well, speaking of books, I guess my something wonderful would be that I I. Not sure if I actually mentioned this while we were talking, but I started reading the Phantom of the Opera n- novel that we re- we were talking about. So I'm excited to uh, excited to uh, finish that. Thank you guys so much for coming on. This was an awesome conversation. Um, Phantom is I think Phantom is such a hard show to talk about, but the, I'm so glad I had both of you here to to talk about it with. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Scene to Song. You can write to scenetosong at gmail.com with a comment or question about an episode or about musical theater, or if you'd like to be a podcast guest. Love this podcast? Help it find more listeners by rating it on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Follow us on Instagram at Scene to Song, on Twitter at Scene Song, and on Facebook at Scene to Song with Shoshana Greenberg Podcast. Sign up for our monthly e-newsletter at scenetosong.substack.com and contribute to the new Patreon. The theme music you are hearing is by Julia Meinwald. And be sure to check back in two weeks for our next episode.